Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We're In Social Work. Hello, and welcome to In Social Work. I'm Charles Sims, your host for this episode. It is not a surprise to anyone to hear about rising health care costs. The PBS NewsHour reported in October of 2012 that the American health care costs were about 18% of the total gross domestic product. That translated to over $2.5 trillion with that cost continuing to rise. Another worrisome statistic was reported in September 2013. A New York Times article reported that some 48 million Americans, or about 15.5% of the U.S. population, were without health insurance in 2012. These numbers highlight a disquieting reality and give light to why it is important that social workers understand health care policy and its impact on those we serve. Created in 1965, Medicaid was developed to address the health care needs of low-income families as well as individuals who had a disability, were blind, or aged. While often described as an entitlement, Medicaid is a form of health insurance, ensuring that those who are in need of health care and are eligible have access to it. Following the commercial market, this form of health insurance underwent changes in the 90s to include a more managed care model. More recently, Medicaid is again undergoing change. With the Affordable Care Act, Medicaid offers the opportunity for expanded eligibility and thus coverage to people who were previously ineligible. Dr. Tony P. Miles is the director of the Institute of Gerontology and Professor of Epidemiology and Biostatistics in the College of Public Health at the University of Georgia, Athens. She is also the founding director of the Pennsylvania State University Center for Special Populations and Health and has previously served as a Health and Aging Policy Fellow on the United States Senate Finance Committee. With more than 125 publications, Dr. Miles' recent scholarship includes articles on the Aging Healthcare Workforce, Physical Problems Shaping Transitions of Care, and the Application of Ethics to the Analysis of Healthcare Policy. In this podcast, Dr. Miles helps the listener understand key provisions of Medicaid expansion and the Affordable Care Act. Dr. Miles was interviewed by Nancy Cusmall, a licensed master social worker and PhD candidate at the School of Social Work at the University at Buffalo. This interview was recorded in April 2013. My name is Nancy Cusmall, and I'm a doctoral candidate at the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. I'm joined today by Dr. Tony Miles, who's a professor of epidemiology and biostatistics and the director of the Institute of Gerontology at the University of Georgia School of Public Health. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Miles. Thank you for having me. So when you think about health care policy, what do you think are really the big issues that social workers need to know about? That's an excellent question. I think 
The first thing that social workers need to really drill into are the details surrounding whether or not their local areas are going to participate in the Medicaid expansion. And I say Medicaid, not Medicare. Medicaid, of course, is the federal-state partnership that provides health care for people with low incomes, mothers and children, and long-term care. And it's complicated, and it's called something different in every area. So that's probably the biggest challenge first in terms of understanding what's going on with the Affordable Care Act. Can you tell us a little more about what makes up Medicaid and then what you mean by the expansion, what that looks like in the states that are participating? Okay, so Medicaid is a state-federal partnership. It is health insurance. Most people don't realize that it's a, a health insurance just like every other health insurance. It's just administered either by your state or by a company that your state contracts with. And basically those contracts cover three distinct populations. The first population are pregnant women and children under the age of 19. And the eligibility for those two groups are mandatory populations, meaning if they're limited Medicaid dollars, those people have to be served first. And the eligibility criteria is based on income. So in most places, it's now 133% of poverty. So there's a set income for poverty And if you make up to 133% of that, you're in as an expected mother or a member of a family. Now, the children in the family will be covered under Medicaid under those conditions, but their parents won't be, which is something a lot of people are sort of stunned by when they encounter it. So the mothers receive Medicaid when they're pregnant, but once they deliver, then just the children are covered? That's right. There's about a 60-day tail for covering the pregnant woman postpartum, but then that goes away. So you can imagine all the different scenarios under which that would create a lot of complexity. The second group of people that are mandatory coverage populations are impoverished elders, so that's the age piece, blind people, and disabled people. And again, the states used to control their Medicaid budgets by moving the income eligibility bar around. So what the Affordable Care Act did was if they wanted to get some enhanced federal funding, they had to set that bar at 133% of poverty for everybody, for the new enrollees. And so those groups get covered too, as well as the pregnant women and the children. And so those are all the mandatory populations that drive the state Medicaid budgets. So the federal government mandates those populations when they give the money to the states? Is that how that works? That's correct. And so... That is all in place or has been in place prior to the Affordable Care Act. The Medicaid budget for impoverished elders also covers long-term care. So these are people who require home and community-based services. In some states, delivery of the support services has to be done within an institutional setting. So skilled nursing, All the different ways you can think about people getting long-term care, elders getting long-term care, Medicaid covers them if they are an impoverished elder. Are the criteria for long-term care the same as the criteria for the low-income elders that you mentioned in the other group? That's correct. And just to give you the big picture, for most states, 
The largest number of people on Medicaid are the younger sample, so children, women, the low-income adults, the disabled and blind. But the biggest chunk of their spending for the states is long-term care because that's going to have an important... When we get into the discussion of what the Affordable Care Act does, that's going to be an important thing to keep in mind. So how has all this changed now with the Affordable Care Act? Okay, so what the Affordable Care Act is trying to do is by making Medicaid available to a broader group of low-income people. And you notice I've said nothing about men. Low-income men, men who are unemployed, are probably the most disadvantaged in our population right now from a health insurance perspective. If they work a low-wage job and they don't have insurance, they're not eligible for Medicaid. There are very few avenues for men to get health insurance, and I think that contributes somewhat to our understanding of the differences between men and women in health and longevity. So what the Affordable Care Act does is it stabilizes eligibility, sets the bar at 133% of poverty for everyone, and then opens it up to the groups that have been basically labeled as ineligible. So a man who is a low-income person can get eligible for Medicaid if his state participates in the expansion. And what the expansion basically does for the states is it says for the first three years of participation, the federal government will pay the premiums of the newly included. So those populations that they're adding, like low-income men. That's right. Now, the federal government define who it has to expand to? Mm-hmm. Okay. And this new definition includes all of the populations not previously included that are below that income bar? Correct. So what do you think this does for the states who opt out of this Medicaid expansion? Does it change their Medicaid picture at all? No, they'll still operate under the old rules. That was the part of the Supreme Court ruling was that the states that opt not to participate will basically continue the way things always were. They will be able to move their eligibility criteria up and down. They just won't get any enhanced funding for newly eligible people. So whatever problems they have with people not being insured will persist. And the states that do opt to do this expansion after that third year, do the states then become responsible for those expenses for those new populations? They pick up 10% of the premiums. Keep in mind what we're talking about here is not the cost of care per se. We're talking about health insurance premiums. Medicaid is an insurance program, just like everybody else's insurance. The states pay premiums to give a certain amount of money to companies that manage them, They're very much an insurance program. So what happens after the first three years is the feds will pay 90% of the premiums of the newly enrolled, and the states now have to pick up 10%. Now, the thing about Medicaid is probably the group that stays on it for a prolonged period is people in long-term care because they're at that stage of life where their incomes are not going to get any better. But everybody else, pregnant women, children and families, and even these newly eligible men, will probably cycle off as the overall economy improves. So that's one way to think about it, is that they're temps in the system. 
And so how often does a person who's on Medicaid recertify or re-report their income? Is that when their income changes or is there a defined period where they would do that in? Well, now that varies from state to state. There's some states that require them to recertify every six months. That's probably the most aggressive recertification requirement. And some states have them for a year. Okay. Are there any specific pieces of the Medicaid and the Medicaid expansion that you think are really important for social workers to know about? If you've got a client and it's important to them, (laughs) then I guess it's something that you need to do. From my perspective as a gerontologist, the long-term care piece, I think, moving forward in time is going to become more and more important for social workers to be aware of because that's the group, long-term care, particularly home and community-based services versus institutional care, is going to be an issue. It is an issue now in the state's retirement destination states, states like Florida, which are seeing an influx of people who are retirement age who come in with resources, but somewhere about 80, 85, a lot of them, their resources run out. I mean, how many people can plan to fund 40 years' worth of retirement? That's a new thing for our culture. So the states are seeing their supports for long-term care funding. It's unstable, and they have no real way to make an estimate right now because we haven't given a lot of thought to it. So social workers, as they work with families that are taking care of older adults, they're going to have to really get on this, and it's going to change month to month, year to year, every six months, something new is happening and people are trying new experiments. So the states are making changes to try different ways to save money or expand services. And so it's important for the social workers to keep up with those changes that are happening in their state. Yeah. So for example, there's a big experiment right now called Money Follows the Person. I think there may be 24 states involved. What this targets is people who are already in institutional settings because their state in the past required that they be in an institutional setting in order to get Medicaid support. This experiment helps them move out of the institutions and back into the communities. Which is good from a standpoint of people want to be in communities, they want to not be in institutions. Is the thought that this will save the state money in the long term? It costs half what it does to keep somebody in the community. Even if you're paying the rent on the apartment and you're bringing all the stuff in for them, it's half what it costs in an institutional setting. So there's an immediate savings for the state. So that's one experiment that's ongoing. And if you go to the Medicare website and type in money follows the person, you can get the details. And they report on it every six months about how it's going. So in a place like Texas, which has probably done the most work to get people back into the community, they have things like home repair services. That are covered under those Medicaid dollars because it's still, again, like you said, cheaper to keep the person at home in a repaired home than it is to put them in an institution. Exactly. So that's one experiment. The other experiment comes at the front end, and it's called the community first choice option. So at the moment when there's a decision being made about this issue, there's an incentive to help people stay in the community longer before making that transition. And what the states get is enhanced federal funding. I think it's up to 5% more. But don't quote me on that. I mean, you can quote me on that one, but 
I would encourage people who are listening to the podcast to look at their local, these are all local issues, so you really do have to follow the, your local environment. But the state of residence gets enhanced Medicaid funding for participating in this community first choice option. Okay, and so that puts in services at the front end to keep somebody from going to an institution. That's correct. And are these all changes that have come as part of the Affordable Care Act specifically, or are they part of a broader look at health care policy and health care expenditures? Money Follows the Person actually started before the Affordable Care Act, but what the Affordable Care Act, and I'm going to call it ACA for short, does is it enhances those programs, adds more resources to make those programs available to a broader array of states. So what are some other changes that have come about kind of from a national perspective from the Affordable Care Act that will impact the people that social workers are working with on a day-to-day basis? There's a group of people out there who are working, but they're either working in jobs that don't offer them health insurance at all, and their income is too high, even with the enhanced uh, eligibility criteria for Medicaid. The Affordable Care Act through its health insurance exchanges, which become viable in 2014, the ACA offers health insurance premium supports for that group of workers. So the person who fell in that income category would apply for assistance with their premium through the Affordable Care Act? Yeah, so part of the details are being, not that they have to apply, what's happening now is there was some wrangling over what they call the individual mandate. But what people will have to do on their taxes is report whether or not they have health insurance. Because in 2014, we'll all be required to. People whose income is at a certain level will have a way, this is my last understanding of it, of directing the dollars to support their premiums to an agency that's connected to this exchange. So they can buy their insurance through the state health insurance exchange, and there will be a, say you work and you make $10 an hour, $10, $12 an hour, $14,000 a year, something in the neighborhood of that. Those people, particularly if they have a family, there'll be a policy in the exchange that gives them the minimum coverage they need, basically health insurance, inpatient, outpatient, some preventive services. That's what they call it a bronze policy. And the feds will pay the premiums for the policy that they select. So it's not like you get a check, and it's not like you have to go through some agency that reviews your qualifications. It's not done that way, or at least the last time I saw it discussed, it wasn't. It's streamlined so that you pick the policy and the feds will send a check on your behalf to that company that you're being covered by. And all of the policies are through private insurance companies. That's right. This is part of the private markets. And so those private insurance companies will decide what the policy actually looks like, what it actually covers, what... No, no, no. Okay, so that's the other thing about the Affordable Care Act. Before the Affordable Care Act was enacted, yeah, the insurance companies could decide whatever they wanted and charge accordingly. Under the Affordable Care Act, there are 12 specific benefits that must be in any policy that is available through the exchange. So one example I can give you, a lot of the private insurance companies had gotten out of the business of providing maternity care. So a lot of folks, particularly young workers, 
would get a policy and attempt to start their families only to find out that there was no coverage for that. Well, that can't happen anymore. That'll be illegal. So that is one of the essential components that one of these policies has to include. Yes. And you said the bronze level. So that sounds like that these policies have to provide you know, a basic level of certain services, but if people had the funds and wanted to purchase more services, they could. That's right. That's exactly right. So what other changes have come to private insurance companies as a result of all this? So from a company perspective, they are now required to pay at least 80% of their premium dollars in benefits for people who are purchasing their policies with them. And that's significantly different than what had been happening before? Oh, yeah. There was no, I could sell you a policy and I could use only 50% of the dollars that you gave me for providing you benefits and keep other 50% as profit. There was no regulation on that. And so when an insurance company does not hit that mark, they have to send the people who own policies with them a check. And there are people who have already gotten those checks. And that's across the board. Every state, they're all required to do that. Yes. What other changes have come in the private sector? So one of the ways, before I did the work on Senate Finance Committee, one of the things that was always a mystery to me was how premiums got set. Why do I have to pay, in my case, $2,000 a month for a family policy? Part of the way that insurance companies would set those rates Well, they could use all kinds of criteria. They could use criteria that define the health experience of the community that you lived in. So if you lived in a community where there were a lot of healthy people, you might pay a lower premium for the same set of benefits than somebody who lives in a place where there's a lot of sick people because a policy sold in that other place is just going to have to pay out more for health care. And that will, will persist, but what has changed is, first of all, they can no longer charge you more if you're a woman. That used to be one of the ways premium rates were set. A postmenopausal woman in the United States couldn't buy a health insurance policy as an individual because it was just prohibitively expensive. And that was different than for a man of a similar age. Right. That's right. And if you had a history of cancer, getting a policy was practically impossible. Or if you were a diabetic at all, or particularly if you had a history of diabetic complications. People would ask as much as 25000 a year for an individual policy, which is prohibitive. Prohibitive for most people. Yes, yes. So the pricing ban, it used to be the older you got, the more you paid, and there was no limit on how big that age span could be. And we know that the older you are, the more likely you are to have health issues and you're going to need insurance. But what happened was you could set a rate for someone who's 25 and then someone who's 55 could pay 10 times that rate or 15 times that rate. Well, that, again, is prohibitive. So now the rate ban can be no more than three to five times what a 25-year-old would pay. So now with the Affordable Care Act, any uninsured individual who's not getting coverage through their employer can go to a private insurance company and get coverage at a rate comparable to the next person of the similar age, irrespective of their health conditions. Yeah, and more importantly, we are all required to have insurance. That's the only way it's going to be cost-effective across the board. 
but that insurance has to be purchased through the exchange. And so let's talk about the exchange for a second. These exchanges are like shopping malls for health insurance. And a state can run one. Some places are experimenting with a regional exchange, so multiple places are trying to band together to do one of these. A state, once again, can opt out of participating in the exchange. So if you live in a state that doesn't have an exchange, there'll be a federal one. Okay. And the federal one will cover all of those states that don't have their own? Yes. So if you want to see one in action, you go to the Massachusetts Connector website. The state of Massachusetts has had a health insurance exchange up and running for a while. And in Massachusetts, I think it's like 94, 95% of all people are covered. Because the only way to make it financially feasible is that everyone participates. And so what you have is a pool of dollars, because basically we're self-financing our health care. That pool of dollars from people who don't need a lot of health care at this point in time pay for the health care by people who do. And we make decisions with that pool about what we think is important. So one of the things that we've made a decision about is that women and children should always get covered. And right now, or before the Affordable Care Act, that wasn't a decision we all made. So it was women and children first and then everybody else kind of mentality for health care. So are there any other overall changes to the Affordable Care Act that you really think will have a day-to-day impact on the people who the social workers interact with? Let's talk a little bit about people who are not citizens by birth. So people who come to the United States under different pathways. Let's start with the worst-case scenario. There's nothing in the Affordable Care Act that acknowledges the existence of people who come here without documentation. Some people call them illegal immigrants or aliens or I view those as derogatory terms. So those people have no recourse under the Affordable Care Act. There's no federal dollars allocated to their care, none of that. So the way ACA works right now for that group is that there will still be a little bit of money that goes to the hospitals that are caring for them because we recognize there are some communities with high rates of caring for people who have nothing. And that those dollars are called the disproportionate share dollars. But the size of that pool, because more people will have health insurance, is going to get smaller. So it will really be targeted to those communities who serve a disproportionate number of undocumented or uninsured parties. That's right. That's right. But there's no specific language for people who are illegal. Okay, the next step up, though is people who come here, students who come to study here, or in the medical side, we bring in residents who do our medical training under the H visa system. Before, we had laws on the books that their children, if they couldn't get health insurance, and a lot of times they don't because universities still have different policies about health care, their children had to wait five years before they would be eligible for any of our public programs if they were sick. There had been this pool of children who were uncovered because of their parents' status. Exactly, exactly. And five years, as you know, in a child's life is huge. And so that five-year waiting period has been removed. 
So through the Affordable Care Act, the parents that we bring here to do the work that we need to do in the United States, their kids can now get some kind of coverage when they're ill. The other thing, though, I think social workers are uniquely positioned to be aware of. One of the ways that we are lowering our health care costs is being more cognizant of fraud and abuse. This is particularly a problem for beneficiaries who are cognitively impaired or frail. And any social worker who is in a position to observe that their client is not getting care that's been set up, I think, should ask themselves, am I observing fraud? If they think they are, there is now Medicare maintains a hotline that you can call. Because it's been estimated that maybe 15, 20% of our expenditures are from fraud. And you would define fraud as being billing for care that's not being delivered. That's definitely one piece of it. Do you have that number? Do you have a resource that our listeners can find that information? Yes. There's an online piece, if you want to go out online. So you can contact the Office of the Inspector General. And if you type in report space fraud space online, That takes you to that website. Or you can call 800-447-8477. Okay, that's one place. The other place is you can call the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And that's at 800-633-4227. So these are definitely some good ways that social workers can be directly engaged in the cost savings on on an individual level. On a broader sense, what would you like to see change about healthcare policy? What is number one on your wish list of what needs to change in healthcare policy? Right now, the Affordable Care Act, let me give you a little bit of history. In the book, I do talk about the context. Most of us don't understand why these changes were necessary or the history of health care in this country. So most people don't understand that Medicare achieved two goals. One was getting rid of barriers to health care for the elderly. Before it was enacted, older people could not get access to hospitals because most of them didn't have any money. The other thing that Medicare did, which is also not widely discussed, is it desegregated U.S. health care. The hospitals could not get Medicare dollars unless they admitted everybody. We talk about health disparities, but as late as 1970, in this United States, we had segregated hospitals. And separate but equal never works. So the next, I say, frontier in healthcare disparities is language. We need to deliver healthcare in a language that everybody can understand. And there are strategies to do that and not break the bank. It is no longer legal, for example, to use family members as the primary translators in a healthcare setting. And too often that happens. So you have 10 year olds translating for people in their 70s. Right. And all the issues around culture and not wanting to share certain parts of care with other family members, so information not getting through. That's right. And there are companies now, you can put a phone in every exam room call up the company, they will provide a native speaker in the language that you are attempting to communicate in who's also trained in healthcare, and you get much better quality of conversation. I used to live in Louisville, Kentucky, where 77 languages were spoken in the community. And the community health centers, which are 
sort of our public health equivalent in healthcare. That's a technique that they use to much to the satisfaction of both the providers and the patients. So what do you think is the best way for a social worker who's out there in the field to stay engaged in health policy? What's our best source for knowing about changes at some of the detail that you shared with us today? Find out who in your state is responsible for setting the regulations for Medicaid. And I would consult that on a regular basis because sometimes, I'm going to just lay it out there, you will find that some people who are delivering care to the communities that you're serving will lie about what the policy is. I've come across examples of that. And the social workers were not aware that they were being lied to. This is a very political issue we're talking about as much as health care. And so implementing these components of the Affordable Care Act will be important. But so find out who in your state is responsible for doing implementation, get to know them, and find out what is the next best thing, what's the next biggest thing. That's the state level, but it's always really important to go to the cms.gov and find out what CMS has to say about what's going on. So knowledge is power and social workers as knowledge for the people that they work with and take care of. Yes. I had a part-time faculty appointment in the School of Social Work at University of Louisville. And part of what we trained our people to do was to be advocates. And so in your role as an advocate, yeah, and it'll be frustrating. I'm not going to say you're going to be successful every time. But part of your role as an advocate is to ensure that the laws that we have on the books get implemented. Because ACA is not perfect, but it sure fixes a lot of things. Like I said, for young people, 18 to 34, that's a group that basically has been going naked when it comes to health care. We'll now get it. Pregnant women have been losing coverage. Most of us didn't realize it. Helping the states balance their budgets and do this transition, being able to offer smart solutions in your local area will be an important advocacy point. I'm excited about the future. For those of you under 30, healthcare will be so much better <laughs> when they finally work out all these details. And if you have clients that are 50 and older, encourage them to eat their vegetables and go to the gym. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, for sharing your knowledge, for the work that you do in the areas of health policy. Thank you, Nancy. Hello again. This is Charles Sims, and you have been listening to a discussion with Dr. Tony Miles on healthcare policy, Medicaid expansion, and the Affordable Care Act. I hope you found it informative and will join us again at In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, professor and dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu.